Calvin describes the Psalms as containing an alphabet of the emotions. And I love that idea, and I love that way of putting it. You think about that for a moment. Anger, boredom, contentment, disappointment, encouragement, fear, gratitude, hope. I think I'll quit there before I get anywhere near Q, or uh, anything that's difficult, or X or Z later on. But uh, we all experience, don't we, an alphabet of the emotions, sometimes right up against each other in ways that are disconcerting. And sometimes as the ministry goes on, those kind of swings become sort of higher and lower, don't they, in different ways for us. Well, we began yesterday, if you're on that front page, with the overall shape of Psalm 22. And we noticed torment at the beginning of the story. And we noticed that in the end there's triumph. And yet there's still turmoil in the middle, and we haven't thought yet about how we move from such a difficult beginning to such a triumphant ending. What is it that happens between, if you like, A and Z that makes it so different by the time we get to the end of the story? We then spend some time, and uh, I'm, I'm conscious in a sense I can sound as if I'm teaching you to suck eggs. I'm not at all trying to do that. Sometimes thinking in ways that I personally find helpful um, if you like, deliberately articulating what we're all doing anyway uh, in different ways. Uh, and how to travel, if you like, safely from there to here. And I suggested in that diagram on the front page that working out the story is a good place to start. It always is. And then to put the story on the stage, to think about the reason the storyteller had for setting his own experience of God on a wider stage for God's people as a whole to hear and see and learn from. And we were talking at breakfast with somebody about what was that story doing for a thousand years before Good Friday? And I'll come back to that again today. And then we moved in our mind's eye from the stage, the story on the stage, to the Saviour on the cross. We can't help doing that. The Spirit insists that we do that. But we move in our mind's eye from one to the other, from, if you like, the story in the Old Testament to the Saviour on Good Friday, and from him back to there. And we thought about the Lord Jesus hearing the shouts from the criminal alongside him, from the crowds and the religious leaders. And when we move from the Saviour, if you like, to us in the stalls, where sinners before or anything else, aren't we? Subsequently, we're immensely privileged by God's grace. We thought about our sin that made it necessary for the Lord Jesus to endure all this for us and his love and willingness to suffer instead of us. And, and then we thought a little bit about our awareness of God's silence in issues that, deal, that, are, that are kind of prompted by what's going on in our hearts or in our families or in our ministries. There are times when we cry out and there seems to be no answer. We thought about our, our anxiety about God's absence at times and, and more. Now a day later, if you come inside on the inside uh, uh, page now of this outline and look back over these verses that we thought about together yesterday, there really is a remarkable emotional intensity in the language that David uses. You'd have to say that he's crying out in anguish at God's absence. His prolonged experience of God-forsakenness, his agony to him, and his endurance of God's silence leaves a persistent restlessness in him. 
I sometimes wonder about our intercessions on a Sunday morning. I don't know how it is in the church where you serve. But, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is not the way I'm expecting the intercessions to begin. And uh, perhaps they ought to a bit more go in that direction than they do. So what are we to make of his emotional intensity? I was talking to somebody else over a cup of coffee and they were saying, thanks for the pictures, I'm a kind of visual person. Well, is it just that David is a kind of emotionally intense person? I don't think so. I mentioned yesterday briefly 2 Timothy 3.16, you all know it well, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, uh, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Perhaps you know it in an earlier version. Now I take it that God's inspiration of the scriptures intends not only to the intellectual content of, if you like, what the scriptures say, but also to the emotional content. And so God inspires the scriptures not only, if you like, in what they say, but in also how the scriptures say what they say. And that's, to my mind, really important and helpful to grasp as we come to a passage like this one. You see, if that's right, and I think it is, then Psalm 22 not only says what David wanted to say and how David wanted to say it, but also what God wanted David to say. And here's the point, how God wanted David to say it. In that case, if the emotional content of Scripture is as inspired as the intellectual content of Scripture in every passage, including this one, then we do well to pay careful careful attention to the emotional content as well as the intellectual content. If you like, the volume, the tone, the atmosphere, the colour, the feeling is given by God just as much as the meaning of the words themselves. And that encourages us because then we don't need to be surprised when we find ourselves experiencing the whole alphabet of the emotions that David's songs and prayers include. Here are songs to help us express and handle the whole range of emotions that life and ministry and suffering and joy throw at us and throw at the people that we're seeking to minister among and connect with and lead to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's great help for us in this. I hope that we'll find together. Again, you know this. Now, today's central section of the song is still intensely emotional, but David does something very distinctive. He turns, if you like, from intense language to vivid imagery in order to express his feelings plainly. And here's another move that I think is worth seeing and worth articulating that that what's true of the words of the Psalms and true of the emotions of the Psalms is also true of the imagery in the Psalms. So here are images that David chooses to express what he wanted to say in the pictures that he chose to use. And these same images express what what God wanted David to choose in the images that God wanted David to choose. So I want to suggest that the visual content of the scriptures is as inspired as the emotional content, which is as inspired as the intellectual content in every passage, including this one. And again, do you see how helpful that is? That these are pictures, in a sense, that we don't have to paint. You're brilliant painters of pictures in words. God has gifted you to do that. But here are the pictures that God says we need to use to do the job that 
has been given for this particular passage to do in our lives, in our ministry, in the lives of those who encounter this passage with us. So, just in case you've fallen asleep, let's get you to work in twos and threes and do something similar that we did yesterday. And again, quite deliberately, I'm going to go step by step around that journey that we made yesterday. And we're at the first base just now. And if you're wondering what word goes into that uh, sentence at the top of page three in your outline, it's the word story. What's the story that makes sense of the song? So, will you talk to your neighbour... Just for a moment, and again, please forget about Good Friday for the moment. We're going there, I promise, but not yet. And will you look at the, the imagery that David chooses in these particular verses and speak to your neighbour about the story that makes sense of such vivid and powerful imagery, the language of bulls and lions and dogs and, and water and wax and broken pottery and feet being chewed or gnawed before you're even dead. What story makes sense of this vivid imagery? Off you go. Three minutes. I do mean that, not five. Okay. (coughs) Okay, let me interrupt you there. You're well away. Can I draw you back? All right, we're going to move on. If you wanted a heading for yesterday, I suggested uh, complaining with confidence. If you want a single heading for today, it's praying with pictures. And in verses 12 to 18, there are two sets of pictures followed by David's prayer in 19 to 21. And I want to take you step by step through the imagery and we'll look at it together in some detail. Look in verse 12. Bulls. David's enemies are like animals. There are many of them. These are strong bulls. Beshan is the farming country in the northeast, and they've encircled him. I grew up on a farm, and as it happens, my first pet as a child was a bull. Um, it was a bull calf, an Aberdeen Angus. It was black. We called him Ebony. And I don't know if you've done this kind of thing yourself. I fed him by hand every day. You put your hand in the calf's mouth and it starts to suck and you draw the hand down into the bucket of milk and then the milk takes over and uh, the bull begins to grow. Fed him till he was big enough to eat solid food and then he went off and did his business, as bulls do, for about ten years. And then he was made into dog meat. There isn't much uh, sentimentality on a farm. There's nothing uh, cuddly about the... uh, Enemies that surround our singer, either. If you look at the verse, there are many of them. These are not modern dairy cows, and they are, instead they're wild oxen. The, the word means a species called auroch, and they're now extinct. The last one died in uh, 1627. They were taller than me at the shoulder. So the shoulder ends here, and the head starts up there. And uh, they weighed a ton. They're not gathering around David to lick him. They are determined to gore him or trample him in the dust. This is a vivid picture, isn't it, of raw power of a number of men and the hostile strength of these men, which is visible, not just at the shoulder, as they gather around him to destroy him. 
Look in verse 13. They're now roaring lions, these men. They're ready to devour him as quickly as possible. Shepherds all knew what lions can do. Their teeth are tough enough, their jaws are strong enough to tear their prey into pieces. They bite with a pressure of 600 pounds per square inch. And the sound of a single roar of a solitary lion is still a fearful sound, even from a distance. Even if you've been to Africa, you'll know what a a lion's roar sounds like. And you've got the door locked. Still a frightening sound. And David is surrounded by many of these lions, and they're up close, and they're roaring together. It's as if he can feel their breath on his face as they prepare to devour him. If the bulls picture the kind of sheer power and number of his enemies, perhaps these roaring lions are recording the sound of their determination to take his life and their delight in the violence that they're about to inflict on him. And then David's focus switches. And it switches from the outward terror that surrounds him to the internal disintegration that he is experiencing. Verse 14. You see, his bones and his heart are both involved. He he feels as if he is melting, leaking. The language of water spilling out, leaking away. The language of wax expressing his loss of the strength that he's always known. His failing strength leaves him feeling fluid and feeble. He's losing his form, we might say. And then in verse 15, he leaves behind the language of liquids and he turns to the language of desiccation. He's feeling like water in verse 15, but he's dried up and desperate for water in verse 15. You see in verse 15, he's increasingly, as we'd say, desiccated, dried out and broken up. He feels like a useless piece of broken pottery and his tongue sticks to his gums. If you ever cared for somebody who's dying uh, in a hospital or at home, you'll remember the little sponges on the end of the sticks that they give you. And they give you those so that you can soak the sponge in water and moisten the lips of the person who is dying. We were looking at this together uh, at home at a men's breakfast and I was on table with a GP. He said to me, he was astonished by the medical, in a sense, accuracy of the imagery, the diagnosis, the thirst that goes with death approaching. And where is God in all of this? And who is God in all of this? Look at the last and final line of verse 15 for a portrait of God in David's difficulty and agony. He says, you lay me in the dust of death. He may say it tenderly, and you lay me in the dust of death. Do you remember the portrait of God yesterday? God the midwife. I don't suppose you preached on that before. You brought me out of the womb, says David to God, back across the page. And now who God is, now see who God is as David experiences him at this stage. He's God, I might say, God the grave digger. God the funeral director. You lay me in the dust of death. So the same God who brought him into the world is the God who is now ushering him out of the world. The God who has been with him before his birth, at the point of his birth, is the now the God who is allowing his death and arranging his burial. There seems to be something beautiful about that. 
that he holds on in faith at the point of this kind of death. And David moves on from encircling bulls and devouring lions to to scavenging dogs. And from dogs he switches to the men around him, gambling for the garments he'll leave behind him after he dies. Look in verse 16. Dogs, he says, surrounds me. Surround me. And this is not the kind of dog that sleeps at the foot of your bed, if you allow such a thing. Dogs not allowed upstairs in the houses in which I grew up. But I have a friend whose idea of total contentment is this. He likes to be in bed with his wife, with their two dogs lying on the end of the bed. That is not my idea of a good time. (laughs) This is not that kind of dog. These are dogs that feed on human corpses. They're already chewing their way through this man's hands and his feet. They can't wait for his death to arrive. And you see in verse 17, he's actually not much of a meal. All his bones are exposed. And normally when we see someone who is near death, either in person or on the television, in a region where there's been a famine or a war zone, we're moved with compassion at their suffering. I was moved this morning to see pictures of Henry Worsley, who died on Saturday, who in his prime, you can see him as a serving soldier in one picture, and you can see an emaciated picture of a man shortly before his death, another picture side by side. It's impossible not to be moved by that. He was my brother-in-law's commanding officer. The family gutted at his loss, his own family gutted at his loss. I was ordained, and I went to a man two weeks after being ordained. He was painfully thin many years ago now. I remember him vividly, his appearance. Uh, I prayed with him. He was restless. The scriptures and the grace of God settled him. And he died shortly after I visited him. I've never forgotten his appearance. Now you see our singer knows the people who are watching over his death are not feeling sorry for him. They're not moved by his appearance. They're looking forward to his disappearance. They're gloating over him. And they're very glad to get rid of a maggot like him. End of verse 17. They stare and gloat. And verse 18, in an act of extraordinary cruelty that kind of immediately takes us to Good Friday, they're already gambling for the garments he's leaving behind. They're shaking a dice or playing a game to see who gets what. And while they're gathering around him, roaring for his blood, gloating over his gradual disintegration, he still prays. If you look back to verse 11, he says, trouble is near, there's no one to help. He's alone. He cries out to God, do not be far from me. Please come, please help, come quickly. And if you look in verse 19, he prays, he prays that, doesn't he? Come quickly. And uses the Lord's name for the first time. In spite of all this that's going on around him, he's persisted in faith. In spite of all that's going on within him, without any human helper to encourage him, he he looks to God. You see in verse 19, you are my strength and my helper. Come to help me, he says. I love that picture of who God is, God his strength and God his helper. Because he's out of strength and he's out of time. You see in verse 20 he says, deliver me. And yet he knows that he can't escape death. The men with the swords will have their way. The dogs are baying, the lions are roaring, the bulls are encircling, but still he prays. And for a moment that's where we're going to leave him. See, he's crying out to God and he's dying and the bulls and the lions and the dogs are winning. 
And it's not yet clear whether God is listening. It's not yet obvious whether or not God has utterly abandoned him. Would you just take a moment on your own at that point, as I, as I kind of pause at the end of the story, to pick out a line, to pick out an aspect of the imagery that grips you personally, that takes hold of you individually, freshly today. Just choose an image, a phrase, and write it into your notes. And then I'm going to move to see what does this story do in the life of God's people for ten centuries. So which aspect of the imagery reaches you personally most deeply now? You choose. Okay, I'm assuming you've chosen. Now come with me and make a move. And again, I'm doing it quite deliberately in a way that's deliberately clunky so that you can see what I'm doing. Let's put this story on the stage for a moment. King David doesn't record this in his notes as you've just done, but privately. He records this description of human suffering and spiritual isolation and physical disintegration and social ostracism for God's people to see and for God's people to hear for generation after generation after generation. Well, why would he do that? And for a thousand years, as God's people read these words and absorb these images and the underlying emotion, and they, at the same time, they lived and uh, they loved their families and they laughed at each other's jokes and they went to work and they prayed to the God who controlled every detail of their lives, even when they seemed to be losing. What are these images and these words doing in their life together? Uh, think about some of the questions they must have been asking as they came back to this psalm, wherever it came up when they came across it together. I mean, why does God allow a lifelong believer to suffer such a death? There's no sign of him saying, look, I know what I did and therefore I know what's going to happen. Why? Says the singer in the psalm. And why do his enemies hate him so much? All they say about him is that he's a believer. Let God deliver him if he delights in him. Well, were they asking, is the man literally dying, or is he in some way picturing his death as uh, expressing the desperation that he's feeling as his political enemies draw in for the kill? In which case, where else does this kind of situation apply? When God's people individually or as a nation were feeling overwhelmed or surrounded or powerless or vulnerable or weak as water and dry as dust, perhaps they pray as the singer <coughs> prays over those thousand years. Deliver me, verse 20. Come quickly, verse 19. You see, it's worth taking time to set the story on the stage and sit with it before we come together to Good Friday and see how it speaks to us so wonderfully of the Saviour we love and serve. Now let's make that next move. You do this. To go from the stage, what we just thought about for a few moments, to the Saviour. And will you travel in your mind's eye from Good Friday to this scene and back again just for a moment, all right? A couple of minutes. Just pick out one thing that really strikes you and tell your neighbour. Off you go. Okay, let's get back get together again. I'm conscious you're just getting going.
I think you'll agree with me that Psalm 22, as we all know, is the most wonderful preview of Good Friday. I love the way in detail you see the events of Good Friday spelt out here a thousand years before they take place. I want to say, how cool is that? As a teenager might say, it really is very impressive that uh, there they are gambling for his clothing, casting lots for his garments in a way that precisely promises a thousand years early what they will do on Good Friday afternoon. Psalm 22 pictures all that the Lord Jesus was willing to endure. This is what really touches me. You know the central characters in the story, the leaders, uh, the crowd, the criminals, the centurion, the soldiers, in a way, doing what they were doing and doing it gladly. Gloating, as the psalm tells us. Something disgusting about that, isn't there, as they gloat over the death, impending death of the Lord Jesus, knowing fine well of his innocence. Do you see how Psalm 22 adds to what the Gospels record? Psalm 22 pictures what the crowds and the criminals and the religious leaders might have felt like to the one hanging on the cross for us. A pack of animals, ruthless, powerful, massive, determined, noisy, violent, disgusting. Do you see what Psalm 22 shows us about what I said yesterday is the inside story of Good Friday. The experience of inward disintegration that the Lord Jesus was willing to endure for us. That's breaking down of what had been substantial into what felt like liquid. The language of water and wax. Loss of form and loss of identity, loss of meant to be human, for us. And at the same time, what we can just see, I thirst, the drying out, the loss of that uh, fluid, the sense that his tongue was sticking and there was more yet to say. I want to say, what a portrait of Good Friday. Animals baying for his death, inward disintegration, his life melting, his mouth drying, his tongue sticking. But then come with me to the tail end of Good Friday. Five past three. Quarter past five. Because it seems to me that Psalm 22 also helps us to feel how Good Friday afternoon must have felt and how Good Friday afternoon must have looked to anybody who was anywhere near the scene, even some on the edges of the scene, those faithful women at the heart of the scene when the men were nowhere to be seen. Because by the end of Good Friday afternoon, what was there to see? The Lord Jesus crushed like an unwanted maggot, as we thought yesterday. The lions, now silent, no need to roar any longer. They had blood on their jaws and they went home delighted at their afternoon's work. The men who went home with his clothes were glad to have won the toss. There was no sign of God's presence. And there was no sign at the sight of the cross, although it was different in the temple, that anyone had heard his prayer. And there was no sign of what, God, what Roger described yesterday as God's hidden work happening there. It was still hidden if you were standing there. And there are times like that in the Christian life, aren't there? And there are times like, like that in Christian ministry still. 
Here's what it's like to be a Christian in Lahore. An email came through from a Christian friend who was living there until relatively recently. I quote, My wife was attacked in October and got injured, and then our home, we were attacked by fanatics. Our children were not going to school as the same group tried to kidnap them. She and the children moved to the UK where they applied for asylum, but unfortunately, authorities are not going to trust us, so they're under fiery trial. We need your prayers. She's not yet been interviewed for the process and is still somewhere under custody, but at least we're sure they'll not kill them and they are safe. I'm not living in my residence, as always. They are monitoring my movement and I'm afraid someday I may be killed. In the end, he had to leave. And now he's living here and is lost in limbo in the asylum system. I said yesterday, there are times when God's people feel that he's unattainable. And God's people feel that he's unavailable and God's people feel that he's invisible, inactive and silent and unmoved and indifferent to the suffering of his people. And there are times when it looks as if the bulls and the lions and the dogs are in charge. And it's foolish to say anything else, isn't it, than that, that it is so. We know it is so. And yet in God's kindness, Good Friday afternoon is not the end of the story. It's not the end of this psalm. It wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. And in God's mercy, the day of our own death, even if we had to endure a violent, apparently God-forsaken death, is not the end of the story for any of us who by God's grace have been able to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this psalm shows us that. And we can live and die by that, can't we? Would you take a moment, just again, in those pairs and threes and talk to each other about what strikes you most powerful if we look at the psalm together in that way. There's a mirror here for us to see into. There are glasses here for us to see through and see the character of God and his grace and goodness to us. And there's an invitation here for us to know of God's loving kindness more deeply and intimately than we've ever known him before. Which of those ways of seeing, hearing, speaks most plainly to you? Will you tell your neighbour? Off you go. Three minutes. Okay. I know we could go on, but I need to stop you there. I'm going to leave us in prayer. As we said, let's pray together. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me. Rescue me. We thank you, gracious God, for this portrait of Good Friday, ten centuries before the, that great day. And we thank you for all that we can see of the love of the Lord Jesus here. Thank you for all that we can see for your sovereign hand controlling every detail of that great day and not just of that great day but of every day. And we ask for your help for us 
praying that you will be our strength and our helper. And in moments of greatest difficulty, of God-forsakenness, of feeling alone and overwhelmed and outnumbered and days when we're feeling like we're falling apart, we ask that you'll help us to pray as the Lord Jesus himself prayed in full confidence. And even if we die, we pray that you'll give us that confidence that beyond that day there's a day of great delight and new life and joy and song and feasting in the company of all God's people. And we ask that we may live and die in faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.